On March 8, 2021, Brazilian Supreme Court Justice Edson Fachin reversed three sentences against former President Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva that stemmed from the Operation Car Wash, or Operação Lava Jato, and had condemned Lula to more than 12 years in prison. The decision also restored his political rights. Sei de que eu fui vítima da maior mentira jurídica contada em 500 anos de história. The very next day, from the headquarters of the Metal Workers Union, Lula delivered a blistering speech that not only criticized the political persecution that he endured, which he called, as we heard, the biggest legal lie in 500 years of history, but also the far-right president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, and his disastrous presidency. But Bolsonaro likely would have never come to power had it not been for the judicial persecution of Lula through a process called lawfare that kept him from appearing on the ballot in the 2018 election. With the rise of the pink-tied countries in Latin America in the early 2000s, the ruling classes, with the support of the United States, sought to utilize the judicial system to reverse the progressive tide by discrediting leaders and the political movements they represented. Dilma Rousseff, Fernando Lugo, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, Rafael Correa, and Jorge Glass all have been subject to the strategy of lawfare. On this month's episode, we're going to take a look at lawfare in the context of Brazil. What is lawfare? And how is it used as yet another instrument to attack the left and defend the interests of the ruling class and imperialism? We will also explore the implication of a potential Lula presidency for the region. This is Super Exploitation and Resistance. Welcome to the second episode of the Super Exploitation and Resistance podcast, powered by Common Frontiers and Allies in the Canadian Labour Movement. The song we just heard is Caminos Alternativos from our friends at the Landless Peasants Movement, or MST, in Brazil. This podcast brings the voices of labor leaders, activists, organizers, and social movements to a North American audience. We share the perspectives of people on the front lines of social struggle and change in Latin America. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja, a Mexican freelance journalist based in Mexico City with a decade of experience supporting social movements and revolutionary struggles in Latin America through my work and activism. Raul Burbano, a community organizer in Toronto and the program director for Common Frontiers, is our producer. On today's program, we'll be speaking with Fernando Lopez, advisor on international affairs for the National Metalworkers Union in Brazil and former president of the union. But first, we will hear from Brian Meir. He's the editor of Brazil Wire, an online outlet covering the South American country that has consistently provided coverage you cannot find anywhere else, and one of the few outlets that spoke out against the use of lawfare in the country. We asked Brian to help us understand, just what is lawfare? The standard definition now that's used by like Lula's defense lawyers and people like that, is that lawfare is the use of legal tools to annihilate an enemy. Annihilation? That's a strong word. Yet, it is appropriate here. Sergio Moro, the judge that presided over Operation Car Wash, was never interested in upholding the law. No, rather he was a political actor whose aim was to stop the workers' party, Lula's party, from returning to power. All the charges against him that were waged as part of Operation Lava Jato, which it's very important to point out, was always a partnership between the US DOJ, the US SEC, the Swiss Federal Police, and a, a local public prosecutor's office in the city of Curitiba. In the Lula case, there's rampant, rampant evidence of suppression of evidence that would have been beneficial to his defense. Just one example. 
is that Sergio Moro, in a bizarre loophole in the law, going back to the Portuguese Inquisition, was allowed to be the judge over the investigation and then rule on it. So he's the one who authorized what evidence could go into the trial or not. So he rejected 73 witnesses for the defense. And that's just one example of the many abuses committed in this case against Lula. The abuses were so many that on March 23rd, the Brazilian Supreme Court's second working group ruled that Sergio Moro, the judge who imprisoned Lula and later served as justice minister for Bolsonaro, is suspected of felony judicial partiality. There's another term we could use for this sort of flagrant abuse, a coup. Fernando Lopez tells us more. Here we talk about soft coups. Coups are not carried out with tanks on the street, though that can still happen, but not in this case. Instead, they use lawfare to try to oust government, but they will not succeed because the people are stronger. It's necessary to make a distinction between a legal instrument and lawfare, because lawfare is a perversion of law. Lawfare is a false use of the law in order to put forward false arguments. In reality, it is an abuse of the Constitution and the law. When looking at the case of lawfare against Lula, it's worth analyzing why his political rivals would go to these lengths. What is it about Lula and the Workers' Party governments that they found so threatening that they had to not only oust Lula's successor, Dilma Rousseff, through a parliamentary coup in 2016, but also prevent Lula from returning and running in 2018 and bringing the party back into power. Brian Meir explains. You have to look at what they managed to do with what power they had. They never had control over the military. They never had control over Congress. And they still managed to break, at least partially, from this neoliberal development model of the 90s. And what they did was they built up key sectors of Brazilian industry. The entire strategy for Brazilian development was based on like strong civil construction sector, which received public subsidies for housing construction for lower middle class and some um, poor people's housing, social housing construction. It was the petroleum industry with these massive new offshore petroleum deposits discovered by the public state petroleum company Petrobras, which propelled Brazil into like one of the top five producers in the world. It was um, building up national agribusiness companies like JBS, which bought Swift and became the largest meatpacking company in the world during the PT years, and shipbuilding. You know that Lula built a shipbuilding industry. Brazil didn't even have one. And so what the Operation Lava Jato did was it targeted specifically all of those industries that were important to the PT's national development project. So it targeted Petrobras. In 2015, Judge Sergio Moro paralyzed all open contracts in the five largest construction and engineering companies in the country, causing an immediate 500,000 job layoffs directly over a million indirect job layoffs. And study that was studied at BBC Brazil said that in that year, when the GDP fell 3.4% in Brazil, 2.5% of it was just because of that order. And he also paralyzed the shipbuilding industry. So, and then they went after JBS meatpacking company. So it seemed like it was, they went after Brazil's aeronautics industry as well. You know, all of those were targeted by Sergio Moro, this little local judge from the ninth largest city in Brazil or something, Curitiba, but with massive U.S. backing, right? How could this guy 
paralyzed four of the top five construction companies went bankrupt when he paralyzed their contracts. Like, how could he have the power to do that? It was just outrageous. And now we know from all of the leaked telegram messages revealed by the hacker Wagner Delgatti that they were legally collaborating with the FBI the entire time. They were meeting every 15 days secretly for years. This is a key part of the story that is often left out. The lawfare strategy used against Lula and the Workers' Party was not just about stopping the return of the left, but also dismantling what they were able to build to force Brazil back into a neoliberal development model of cheap labor and cheap resources, subservient to the economic interests of the so-called developed countries. And so what are the economic results of this? Is that all of these northern petroleum companies have moved into Brazil? Because after the 2016 coup, they started privatizing everything. They've benefited. BlackRock has taken over the largest gas station company in Brazil from Petrobras as they outsource it. All of the, the natural resources, all of the, all of the state assets are being sold off to northern companies at pennies on the dollar. As we explored in our previous episode, you cannot understand the political dynamics of Latin America without understanding the role of imperialism. The ruling class in Brazil and imperialism abroad view the Workers' Party and their political project as a threat an impediment to their interest in Brazil's resources. Fernando expands on this point. The principal reason behind the ouster of Dilma was Petrobras. Large private oil and mining companies financed the coup against Dilma, so they will have access to the natural resources such as minerals, oil, and water, because the portable waters bring energy. Brazil has some of the largest reserves of portable water in the world with the Amazon and the Guarani aquifers. So U.S., Canadian, European multinationals are behind effort to stop the Brazilian left and will most certainly support the right. It is important to note the role played by international media outlets in perpetuating this myth that Operation Car Wash was a legitimate struggle against corruption. You had Guardian, New York Times, Washington Post, you know, just repeating arguments from the prosecution in Lava Jato. In 2016, you could read in New York Times, Associated Press, wherever, about U.S. involvement in it. It's really weird because in 2016, for example, Lava Jato led to the greatest fine ever levied on a foreign company in U.S. history. The partnership between Lava Jato, SEC, and DOJ resulted in a $3.5 billion fine of Petrobras. And then just zip, total disappearance. For the next, three, the next two and a half years, they never once mentioned the United States in any of this. So that's one way of manufacturing a narrative, right? Instead of mentioning the U.S. anymore, they lionized this guy, Sergio Moro. So he becomes this hero figure. All of the photos that appear in him, of him in the New York Times are shot from below to give him this monumental appearance. The photos that they include of Lula or Dillman, the same articles, are shot from above to make them look small, you know? Um, he's given the absolute hero's treatment, the arguments of the prosecution are, record, are repeated as fact. When they're, a lot of them are highly controversial, there was one where Rodrigo Janot 
three days before he left office, he accused Lula and Dilma of being the directors of a $350 million organized crime organization. It was a totally frivolous accusation that was thrown out, you know, months later for not having any evidence whatsoever. One of the tactics of lawfare is to make the cases so confusing that it's impossible for a journalist to explain properly in the short space of text that they can use. And so what they do, I'm not necessarily blaming the journalists on this even, you know, because journalists are like super low paid now and stuff like that. There's no way to explain the case. And so what they do is they just repeat the arguments of the of the prosecutors without like any kind of critical look at what's been what they're being accused of and in the case of the the case against lula it's just absolutely absurd they're talking about like jailing the leading presidential candidate in an election year in which he's leading all other candidates he, he had a higher support level in the polls than every other candidate combined and the second place candidate was a fascist so like it was an important thing that it was going to have big ramifications for the second biggest economy in the Americas. And they didn't even like question any of this stuff until his arrest was inevitable. That right when he was going to jail, they started saying things like, oh, well, maybe, maybe this is political. Among social movements, there was never any doubt that this was political. Fernando tells us more. I think we have two battlefields here. One is the legal, to have a legal system where we can appeal the case, to review and bring down these abuses of the legal system. But we also have to have a popular mobilization, because confining the struggle to the legal arena will not guarantee the desired result. We cannot think of this only as a legal struggle. It is a legal fight, but it's also a popular mobilization. This is paramount putting popular pressure at a national level, international level, because like the case of Lula, the fight did not only take place in Brazil. It took place in Canada, Mexico, and the United States in Korea. People all over the world knew Lula was unjustly detained, and there were struggles connected to that. The same thing happened with Nelson Mandela. It is a legal, popular, and international struggle by the popular classes. With the restoration of his political rights, Lula, still among the most popular politicians in Brazil, could make a return to the political scene and run for the presidency in 2022. Some mainstream analysts are already trying to set the terms of the debate, suggesting that with Lula on the ballot, the next election will be a clash of two populisms, one from the left and one from the right. But Fernando shares why this analysis is wrong. In reality, Bolsonaro is no populist. He is a fascist. And Lula is no leftist extremist. If you look at Lula eight years in office, you'll see he was not extremist. He did not expropriate any business. He also didn't privatize either. The capitalists made a lot of money. Lula's vice president was a businessman. So this idea that Bolsonaro is a populist and Lula was on the extreme left is wrong. The forces of capitalists are trying to create a third way on that could be trusted by the markets and businessmen. We, in the Workers' Party, would prefer to face off in the second round of voting with a non-faces opponent, a civilized right, if that does exist. We know that the line that 
Bolsonaro and Lula are two forms of populism and no basis in reality because they are based on a false premise. The national and international bourgeoisie, the banking sector and agribusiness know there is a real possibility of Lula winning the presidency and it is necessary not to close any doors and there will be tendency to return to the Stalin rule of Lula first two terms. But neither Lula nor the bosses are the same as before. And it is silly to think that after 18 years, there will be the same class conciliation there was before, after everything that has happened. Of course, in the political arena, these things happen. But we know we are not going to make the same mistakes that we made before. For example, not going after the media, not guaranteeing a better justice system. We will need to carry out political reforms in the areas of communications, intersectional reforms that need to be done. During Lula's time as president, his model of governance was often depicted as one worth emulating. But as Fernando noted, the left in Brazil has drawn many lessons from that experience and the persecution through lawfare. The scenario cannot be said to be the same as it was during Lula's first two terms. Lula has changed. Yeah, I think it's pushed him farther to the left, and it's pushed Dilma farther to the left too, because there was a time when, like one of the things they would criticize Lula for is that it, was, it seemed like he was trying to please everybody at the same time. You know, because the, a lot of big companies made money during his presidency, but also poverty was greatly reduced. But basically, I think that he's realized at this point that capital is never going to be happy with, and I think Dilma's realized it too, with this kind of compromise where you, you try to keep big business happy, but you also work to reduce inequality and things like that. I think he now realizes that he, he may have overplayed this idea the combination of the Supreme Court rulings plus the disastrous handling of the COVID pandemic is helping everyone remember how uh, the coup governments butchered public health spending, how much better Brazil would be if it had a government running things that actually had like the logistical capacity to roll out vaccines. Like in 2010, when the Lula government gave 80 million flu vaccines out in three months, that they produce in Brazil, stuff like that. People are realizing these public health institutions are really important. You know, Brazil's one of the one countries in Latin America that has the capacity to manufacture huge quantities of vaccines. I think people are beginning to realize, again, the importance of the state as an actor in the development process. And they're remembering what happened during the PT governments. And so this is eating away at Bolsonaro's support. And all of the polls are showing, like, if the elections were held tomorrow, Lula would win in the first round. It's like 13 points ahead of Bolsonaro right now. So I think there's some hope in Brazil. The return of the Workers' Party to power would have far-reaching implications, not just for Brazil, but for all of Latin America. No, então, por certo, por certo que la, la vitória, uma possible vitória de Lula, vai significar uma, uma possibilidade de... Certainly, yes. A potential Lula presidency will have regional implication in the inter-imperialist rivalry between China and the U.S. Latin America could position itself with independence and to negotiate on the basis of equality 
and respect for sovereignty important topics for the region, so I think it is important. Once again, we will need to learn from past mistakes, because in the past, the regional integration projects did not advance far enough. A lot of conferences, documents, and declarations, but very few concrete results. The advantage we have now is that now we can count on Mexico, which we did not have before. The three giants of the region, Argentina, Mexico, and Brazil, if we manage to align ourselves and negotiate together, the whole region will come out on top. Of course, there are unique realities in each. There are contradictions in each country. This is normal. I think the rise of the pink tide, the return of the pink tide, started in Argentina and Bolivia, and really Bolivia. We really have to take our hats off to the Bolivians. Resurgence of the left in Brazil is riding on this wave of this comeback that's happening. Also put AMLO in this, you know, his victory was really important. But if Lula, if the PT were to take Brazil back over, it would have huge ramifications for the region just because it's such a big country and such a big economy. And because of the commitment PT has to Venezuela, You know, Glazy Hoffman, the president of PTU, also a lawfare victim, went to Maduro's inauguration. It's the only left party in Brazil to go there. Like, the PT is always on the side of Bolivarism. It's always on the, in solidarity with MAS, Evo Morales, the left in, in Ecuador. So this idea that the U.S. is doing right now of using Brazil to put pressure on Venezuela would be out the door, for one thing. And that's, that would have positive ramifications, you know, and it might be one of the reasons why they might, the U.S. might step in and try and block PT from taking the election, yeah. like it did in, you know, stepped in in 2016 to help remove PT and stepped in in 2018 to keep PT out of the elections. E Lula diz claramente, mira, se for para ganhar voto, tender que traicionar o povo da Venezuela. Lula has said clearly, if to win vote, I had to betray the people of Venezuela. I'd rather lose the elections. Cuba is another country that is important for the Workers' Party. For the region, on this issue, we differ greatly with the bourgeoisie in capital. They would rather have a domesticated Workers' Party, one that doesn't back Cuba and Venezuela. This will be a big task. I believe in supporting Venezuela through energy projects. With medicines, we used to have a program here in Brazil. The steel workers of Brazil and the landless peasant movement would lend their expertise, restart tractors, machines, so that the compras could produce in the countryside. That kind of solidarity is very strong. And I think that with Lula, with a new government, we could strengthen those ties institutionally. Despite the potential that the return of Lula represents, The fight is not over. The decision by Justice Facin does not rule out the possibility of charges being brought against Lula once more. We should be clear, the defeat of lawfare in this instance is a huge victory. Not just for Brazil, but for all victims of lawfare in the region. So I don't think like this is ever going to stop. I mean, people are always going to use the law to go after political enemies. But I think because of this, Now there's a lot more space to criticize these kinds of operations because 
when this was all starting off, if you criticize it, you were accused of supporting corruption. You know, like you can't you can't do that anymore. Like you can't just be blanketly con- accused of being a conspiracy theorist or someone who supports corruption because you're criticizing a lawfare operation anymore. So I think that's positive. In Brazil, we had a Workers' Party government that worked to redistribute the country's wealth and reduce inequality, one that laid the foundations for a new relationship with imperialist countries, that tried to break the mold of neocolonial and neoliberal development, but was nonetheless still friendly to capital. But as history has shown time and time again, even modest reforms are too much for the ruling class. So what did Brazilian elites and imperialism do? They attempted to destroy Lula, Dilma, and the Workers' Party. A previously unknown judge was tapped to accomplish this goal, violating norms and laws left and right to secure his aims, with the complicity of both national and international media. And he quite nearly succeeded, and they let a fascist take the presidency. A man who happily followed the dictates of Washington and set back regional integration. A man who has presided over what is arguably the worst response to the pandemic in the region. I wonder... How many Brazilians would be alive today had Lula been allowed to run and likely win the presidency? As we mentioned, the judicial persecution of Lula is not the only example of the use of lawfare in Latin America. We likely haven't seen the end of it. But even if the strategy is no longer effective, imperialism and its domestic lackeys will find new ways of maintaining its hegemony. Thus, we must remain vigilant. And we here at Super Exploitation and Resistance We'll be ready to bring you the perspective of those in the struggle. We want to thank you for listening to this month's program. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. We're producing an episode a month. If you have feedback, please share it with us. You can reach me on social media. My handle is at Granado Ceja, G-R-A-N-A-D-O-S-C-E-J-A, on all social media platforms. You can also reach the show directly superexploitationandresistance at gmail.com. I want to thank the supporters of the show, especially Common Frontiers and the Canadian Labour Movement, including the Canadian Union of Postal Workers and QP Ontario. Special thanks to the creative team behind the operation. Guillaume Charbino Quintal with the Steelworkers Humanity Fund, Dr. André Gacuin from the British Columbia Teachers Federation, Michelle Munjanatu, international solidarity organizer living in New York City and an expert on Latin American issues, and Pamela Aranciba, former chair of QP Local 3902. Also thanks to Roberto Martin for the voiceover. We're going to close today's program with some words of inspiration from Fernando López. Thank you for joining us, and hasta la victoria siempre. In North America, solidarity is important. We are in this struggle together. An injury to one is an injury to all. It is important to be informed and not just read the Borgesua media. Programs like this, hearing directly from workers, are essential for people to really know what happens in the world.